This morning, our scripture reading is from 2 Timothy, chapter 3, 14, chapter 4, verse 5. Um, if you want to find it in your pew Bible, it will be on page 843. Again, 2 Timothy 3.14 to 4.5. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those whom you have you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in, the view, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, So as Megan introduced when she was, uh, well, introducing the worship set, as Megan indicated, we're taking a few weeks this summer as a change of pace to consider our church values, our congregational values. Who are we as a community? What are the things that make us who we are? What's essential to our DNA? And so last week, we looked at the first and most fundamental of our core values, that we are God-centered. We saw from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul wrote, One died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And, And this really needs to capture, is what God calls to capture our lives as individuals and our families as cohesive units and our community, that we should be living for Christ, not for ourselves, God-centered. And if you look at the front of your bulletin, that's the reason why the cross runs down the middle. All the other values come out of this. All the other values come out of us being God-centered. The cross is the foundation for all the other values that follow. And the second, in a small icon at the top of the four, the second is that we are biblical, Bible-directed. And now, each of these values are countercultural. There are some parts of being in America that make our lives easier, that support our faith. There are a lot of parts of being in America that challenge our faith. And so each time as we look at one of the core values, we're going to contrast this with the culture. Show how it is both, well, show how it is biblical, but also countercultural. Now this morning, to illustrate that, we have a video that captures one of the key cultural competitions to being biblical.
Now, the question obviously is, what's the competition here to being biblical? I don't mean to suggest that having babies interferes with being biblical, though that is certainly true. We do some serious, intense Bible study around here, and a lot of the parents have told me somewhat sheepishly, once they had kids, they no longer had the time, the energy, or the focus left to do a serious Bible study. But that's not really what I'm driving at. The key to this is not the content of the video, but the place I found it. I found the link to this video on Time Magazine webpage. Do you have a sense of why that's significant? 30, 40 years ago, there were two news magazines that were you know, nationwide, very famous, Time and Newsweek. And these were news magazines with actual news stories. And now, every day on their website, or most days, Time magazine will have a link to a video that's gone viral. How is that newsworthy? You see the shift that's come over our culture. Now, why did Time Magazine do that? What they need is eyeballs. You know, Newsweek is no longer in print, and it's got a minimal web presence, really. They realize it's for, for, to survive in business. They realize the culture has changed. People don't want news analysis, or not very much. They don't want heavy news analysis. What they want is links to viral videos. So if they can help people feel good, people keep clicking their website and they can get the advertising revenue. Even if it means their whole mission, their entire agenda has to shift markedly. I offer another illustration of the same thing. Most of you probably don't know who Barbara Walters is. Anyone? Who knows who Barbara Walters is? Oh, good. Okay, because this illustration, Barbara Walters, you might, you, you, she's, her career is both spectacular and deeply sad. She was the first female co-anchor of a nightly news program. 
You know, there was a time in my lifetime, there was a time when in order to be a newsreader in the evening news, to be taken seriously, you had to be an old white guy that talked serious all the time. And Barbara Walters broke into that. In the 70s, she was interviewing kings and presidents. She was interviewing prime ministers, heads of state, cabinet members. Now, you know how she spent the last 10 years of her career sitting around with a few other women engaging in gab fest over the TV with other women sitting around their TVs watching. And I'm thinking, this is a professional, competent woman. And she's running a goofy gossip show. But you see, what happened is the market shifted. She was a brilliant business person. So he's making a lot more money doing that than news reading. But it shows how American culture has shifted dramatically. In the era of what you could call modernity, or a lot of people call modernity, certainly in the 20th century, it was really pretty much all about science and truth and knowledge. And we went overboard as a culture. Well, the world went overboard. But there were so many scientific breakthroughs and advances that it all became about knowledge and analysis. And we went overboard, and so now you could say in this century, we've swung right to the opposite extreme of post-modernity, where it's all about the things that science couldn't do for us. It couldn't help us connect with each other. So it's all about community. It couldn't help us feel good about things. So it's all about emotion now. And so we've made this huge switch from serious discourse to light, emotional, fun things. The switch from a news magazine to viral videos. The switch in Barbara Walters' career from being a newscaster to The View. Another example, the same thing. As I drive to work, you know, Route 2, I take Route 2 into work every day, and sometimes the traffic is jammed, so I watch WBZ. I'm not, listen to WBZ. <laughs> listen to WBZ. News, what do they call themselves? News radio. I listen for the traffic report. News radio. Do you know what news has become? Every day, they have a poll. They want you to call in and tell them what your opinion is on some issue. News now has become your opinion. News used to be important people who knew a lot told you what the, what the major events of the day were. Now news is you telling them what you think about, what you feel about the news of the day. You see, the culture has shifted so much that our concept of news has changed. Our concept of what's important has changed. Our willingness to engage in thought has changed. We are now in a post-literate society, pretty much. Don't give me the book to read. Show me the video. We're in a post-cognitive society. Don't help me think. Give me something to feel. And so all of this comes into churches. You know, this is our culture. It comes into our church. And so we use videos in sermons. Oh, oh okay. What was the, the chief center of our worship service in the 20th century? It was the sermon. What's the chief center of the worship service in the 21st century? It's the band. Because music will help you feel much more strongly than any sermon will. And so we've shifted our whole ministry. And then for, because of what's going on in the culture as a, 
on the whole, then it's affecting how we do Bible. I listen to a lot of sermons online, sometimes to get the jokes, you know, so I can use them. But, you know, sometimes to get an idea what, what's, what works. You can listen to sermons a long time without much Bible. And it's not because the pastors and preachers aren't capable of preaching Bible exposition. They can. They just know that the market's not there for it. People want to be entertained more than they want to be informed. So it's, uh, what's happening in the society has really posed a challenge. Now, there's a second challenge, not only because our society is now a post-literate, post-cognitive, and much more emotive and anti-cognitive. There's another challenge, is that some parts of the Bible really are offensive to our contemporary culture, particularly biblical sexual ethics. Now, maybe if you follow the news at all, you would have heard about the Hobby Lobby. Hobby Lobby is not around here. It may not have registered with you. But Hobby Lobby is a, I don't think we have a Hobby Lobby around here. But anyway, it's a chain store, particularly in the Midwest, a chain store, uh, crafts. Uh, and the founders are Christians and fabulously wealthy. And Hobby Lobby went to the Supreme Court so that they could be exempt from contributing to the health care under the Obamacare for their employees. They don't want to support uh, birth control methods that would include abortion. They're quite happy to support birth control methods that don't include abortion, but any of the abortion funding uh, provisions they want to be exempt from. And there's been a huge national furor. Can Hobby Lobby get away with this? Or more locally, uh, maybe you've heard that uh, Gordon College recently asked to be exempt from some federal provision regarding uh, hiring discrimination based on sexual orientation. And that because of that, the town of Salem cut one of their uh, joint ventures together. And there may be other repercussions coming. Now, it's sad that the only thing the, church, the world understands about church being countercultural is our sexual ethics. Because they should understand that our approach to money is a lot different. I mean, right? The Bible's approach to money is a lot different than American culture approach to money. They should, that should be obvious, too. So it's sad that we haven't been a, done a better job of showing that our ethics differ. But for both these reasons, really, it's becoming more difficult, not as we face outside, but as we face inside. It's more difficult for the Bible to maintain its proper place in our community because, number one, our culture trains us not to engage in cognitive discourse. And number two, because our culture really influences our own values. And the more influenced we are by culture, the more reluctant we're going to be to embrace biblical values where they differ from our culture. Let's face it, by birth, we are pretty much culture-driven. And what we're trying to do together as a community is become Bible-driven. And it's really a challenge. I'll slip in a couple more illustrations. Culture-driven. What do you think... Ties, you know, for some people who wear ties, I don't know anyone here who wears ties. Ties, you know, skinny ties are back in. Now, I'm too old-fashioned for that. If I wear a tie, it's going to be a broad tie. But skinny ties are back in. Why? I mean, it looks odd to wear a fat tie, a broad tie. Because we're culture-driven. You know, our expectation is created for us. It's not personal taste. Our personal taste is an adaptation of the culture value. Now, did you know that, surely you all know this, skinny women are in now? I was channel surfing on some Saturday, and I came across an Elvis Presley movie. 
Now, in my defense, I was n- I'm not old enough to ever have enjoyed Elvis Presley. So I didn't stay there long. I mean, it was like 30 seconds. But Elvis Presley was known for what were kind of edgy movies in his time. Licentious or, or whatever. Ribald movies in his time. And what struck me about it was they had this picture of some woman dancing. And of course, you know, they're trying to excite people in the 1950s. And it wasn't at all uh, subliminal or it wasn't at all modern. You know, they focused right in on her hips as she's gyrating her hips in the middle of the song. It's really kind of funny in a way, but you can imagine in those days it would have been scandalous. But what was striking about it was this. By contemporary standards, she could never be a star in an Elvis Presley equivalent movie. By contemporary standards, she's kind of plump. But by those standards, she was considered compelling. You see, so our standards in beauty have changed. Our standards in ties have changed. Our standards in sexual mores have changed. Maybe our standards in finances haven't caught up with it yet, but our standards in finances, you know, uh, should be different from the world's. So this makes it really hard to be biblical because by nature, by birth, by training, by exposure, we spend an awful lot of time out in the community and our values are really shaped by the community. So the whole approach to life, the non-cognitive, highly emotive approach to life is a challenge. And then the values we pick up are a challenge. So it's really a challenge for us to be biblical. Now, what does it mean? The, the second point I want to draw attention to is what it means to be biblical. There's three features I want to draw attention to about being biblical. The first is the priority we give to Scripture in our lives. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now think about just this, the first phrase. All Scripture is God-breathed. We used to use the word inspired, but inspired is kind of an odd word. Inspired means breathed into, right? And really what the Greek says here is all Scripture is breathed out by God. The point is, if you want to hear God speak to you, where do you go? If you want to hear God talk to you, you want to know what he wants of you, you want to know what he's done for you, you want to know what's good about God, where do you go? You know, there's some people that will tell you, well, what we should do is pray and listen for God. And maybe, you know, there's an element of that. Other people will tell you to pray that God will give you the gift of prophecy. And prophecy is in Scripture. Maybe there's an element of that. But there's only one place that the Bible ever says we can reliably hear God. The normative way to hear God is through Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If we want to understand God, we want to hear from him, the only place where you can reliably go, the normative place to go, the reflexive place we should go, is the Bible. We're not trying to add to our doctrine. We're trying to know God. We're trying to hear from God. Four or five hundred years ago, this was a revolutionary concept. Think of a church in the Middle Ages 
Well, you still have churches that follow that same architectural framework. We have a communion table. Historically, that was called an altar. And historically, it wasn't down there on the floor. It was up here in the platform, in the middle of the platform. And historically, the priest stood with his back to the congregation because this was an altar where each week, at each Mass, Jesus was sacrificed. And you didn't need to see the front of the preacher because he wasn't talking to you. The preacher was your intermediary between you and God. And he was offering this sacrifice of Jesus to God so that your sins could be forgiven. And the center of medieval religion was the ceremony. And the center of medieval religion was the priest bringing you to God. And the Reformation really awakened people's concept uh, to, to the role of the Bible, their, their understanding to what the role of the Bible should be. And so the table was moved out of the center. It was no longer called an altar. Jesus wasn't being sacrificed. And, and it was moved out of the center. And what was put in the center is pulpits. Huh? And why do we have a big old pulpit like this? Not just so that there's room for two people when we have, you know, a bilingual service and one, key, one key preacher and the interpreter. But the reformed pulpits were huge to communicate architecturally a theological point. The Bible is the center of our lives. God speaks to us through the Bible. And God is huge. And so the Bible, the pulpit, the God were all huge in the middle of the, of the platform. Because our lives center around Scripture. So the first Protestant reformers were called people of the book. And we had huge Bibles as a symbolic representation of the role of the Bible in our lives. The priority of Scripture, to be biblical, at the very least, we have to give priority to Scripture. Now, worship is hugely important, and, and we greatly value the band here. And there's no better way to connect. And one of the great things about the worship teams here is historically we've been very careful the worship leaders have been very careful to choose music that's actually theologically, biblically accurate and substantial. So all of that ties in together. But it's essential, if we're going to be biblical, that the focus should be Scripture. And there has to be a cognitive element. There should be an emotive element as well. But it should be a cognitive-based emotive element. So the first part of being biblical is the priority we give to Scripture. The second piece of being biblical, you'll all know this phrase, is the meaning of Scripture. Most of you will know this phrase. And this, here's where authorial intent comes in. You know, it's really not much good. It's a little bit good to say, you know, if we value the Bible, but we don't read it, what's the point? If we value the Bible and we read it, but we read our own stuff into the Bible... What's the point? What we're supposed to be looking for is what was the author trying to say to us through Scripture? What is God saying to us through Scripture? We can't just read our stuff in. You know, you go to history class, any class in school, and you read a book. What's the, what's the teacher going to test you on? Probably what the book said. Or what the teacher said. You can't go and say to that teacher, and you know, you get a low score. You can't say, well, this is what really stuck out to me from the book. It, what matters is what the author intended, what the teacher highlighted, what the teacher intended when she taught. It, it's not just anything that sticks out. 
We, we mustn't go to Scripture and say, what grips you about this passage? The question is, what gripped the author when he wrote the passage? What was he or she trying to say? Probably all he. I don't know. But what was the author of the Scripture trying to say? What was God saying through them? We never ask, what does this text say to me as the first question? The first question is always, what does this text say? What's the author's main point? Now, here is a real challenge. Do you still have to read Shakespeare in school? Are you delivered from this? Or you still have to suffer through it? Still have to suffer through it? You know, I never liked Shakespeare. I loved reading. And I never liked Shakespeare. Because put it in modern English, first of all. It's a lot quicker to read. If you want to say something, put it in language I understand. And we got this Elizabethan English, and then you got footnotes and the whole thing. But look, to help us read Shakespeare, we have footnotes, we have teachers to help explain it, because otherwise it's really hard to get the background to. Well, look at the Bible. 2,000 years ago, not 500 years ago, 3,500 years ago, in Greek and in Hebrew, not in Old English or, or, or Medieval English. It's not immediately accessible to us. So the reformers, the minute they said the Bible has to be the center of what we do together, they said something else. The minute they became people of the book, they became people of books. Nate. So this is our seminarian, Jeff Bong, and the other end of the camera is Will Young, our, our uh, youth seminarian. Luther, these are the books that Luther wrote, right? Because he wanted to help people understand the Bible and theology. So they couldn't be just people of the book, they had to be people of books. And I had him next to, he wrote more than Jeff is tall, is the point. And Jeff's not a small guy. Luther did this, Calvin did this, Wesley wrote six volumes at least. They were people of books in order to help people understand the book. Thank you, Nathaniel. Harvard. You know what one of the first institutional things that the Puritans did when they came to New England? By the time there were 17,000 Puritans in New England, they started Harvard College. So you could have an educated clergy. If we're going to be people of the book, we have to be people who read books and study. So what does it mean to be biblical? First of all, it means we prioritize scripture. Secondly, it means we prioritize the meaning of scripture. But thirdly, it means we prioritize the application of scripture. Because none of this does anybody any good, ourselves or God or the community around us, if all we do is add to our knowledge. So we start with the question, what did the author mean? What was the author trying to say? What is God saying through this text? And the other, then we go on to the question, how does this impinge on my life? What difference does it make in my life? I want to alert you to one form of application that needs some adjustment. You know, often our application is a bit skewed. And we really have to take a look at this if we want to be biblical. Maybe you know the acronym SPACE. I've got it written out in your uh, you know, bulletin. SPACE. How do we apply scripture? SINS TO CONFESS. This is an acronym. SINS TO CONFESS. 
promises to claim, actions to avoid, commands to obey, example to follow. Sin to confess, promise to claim, action to avoid, command to obey, and example to follow. You see, I got it memorized because we used to teach people this all the time. Good, but not good enough. See, there's a fundamental flaw behind this. Fundamentally, the Bible doesn't start with me and what I'm supposed to do. All this is moralism. Confucian ethic could do this. Or secular ethic, do this, don't do that. It could start with all this space. You know, it could use the same thing. Where scripture starts is with God, not with moralism. What has God done for us? That's always the place we start. Not what we must do for God, but, but what has God done for us? The cross is still the center. The cross is Jesus taking the initiative. What has God done for us? Uh, the second problem with space is it's all about me as an individual. But the Bible is not about me as an individual. The Bible gets to me as an individual, but it starts somewhere else. The Bible is about what God is doing to redeem this world, to restore this world. Genesis 3, the world gets all messed up. And from Genesis 4 all the way, well, Genesis 3, all the way to Revelation 22, the Bible is about one thing. It could be called salvation history. What is God doing in history to get the world back to where it was in Genesis 1 and 2? And even a better place. So we never jump about, what does this Bible text say to me? It's first about God. And secondly, about what God is doing to redeem our world. And thirdly, we don't apply just random stuff in the text. What's the big idea? What's, what's the, what main idea was the author trying to communicate? Authorial intent governs application. We don't just apply randomly. And then application is not just about the things we do. It's about what we think. It's about what we do. It's about who we are. It's about what we feel. So the whole process of being biblical is a lot more complicated. It's not just intuitive. It involves prioritizing scripture. It involves prioritizing, uh, unraveling the, the actual meaning of scripture. It involves the application of scripture that ends with us but doesn't start with us. All of this is terribly complex compared to how we approach things normally. And there's a grave danger that it will distance us from the Bible. The more concerned we are about reading the Bible accurately, the harder it is, quite genuinely harder, to read the Bible. This is why in EM, sometimes people will come up and share their lives during the course of a sermon. Instead of a sermon, we'll have people share their lives. But mostly, all we ever have up here is seminary-trained preachers. Because it takes training to figure this stuff out. You wouldn't have someone who's not trained work on your house or your car. You certainly wouldn't have somebody without training work on your body. Why would we have somebody without training work on your spirit? So we don't let people who haven't had formal training preach. Occasionally they'll share and I'll say to them, look, use only obvious scriptures. If you must use scripture at all, use only the obvious ones. We want to be Bible-based, but we can be Bible-based 49 weeks a year and the other three weeks we can share what, you can share what you're doing in your life. But we want trained people to be explaining scripture. This is why we offer pre-study 
to our Bible study leaders. This stuff, if Shakespeare is not intuitive, the Bible is not going to be intuitive. You can't just pray and ask God to help you understand Shakespeare. You can't just pray and ask God to help you understand the Bible. It takes work. This is why I'm working on daily Bible reading guides, hopefully to start in September. Because we want Scripture to be central to our lives. But we want to handle Scripture in line with the authorial intent. And we want to have it change our lives as God calls for it to change our lives. Our value is this. God speaks to us most clearly and reliably in the Bible. Therefore, we give our minds to understand Scripture. We give our hearts to embrace it. And we give our lives to obey it. We have an English Bible largely because of the work of the forerunner William Tyndall. In William Tyndall's era, traditional clergy objected to people reading the Bible for themselves. The Bible was kept out of the vernacular. The Bible was kept out of daily language. The Bible was only in Latin, so you had to go to the priest to tell you what the Bible meant. William Tyndall, though it was illegal, translated the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into English. He, had to go, he was from England. He had to go to Europe to learn Greek. He translated the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into English. His goal was this, the motto of his life, that every farm laborer, every blue-collar worker, should have opportunity to know the Bible as well as the Pope. It shouldn't be just in Latin, and it shouldn't be just for the highly educated. For his efforts, William Tyndall was condemned by state and church. He was tied to a stake. He was strangled. And then to make sure the job was completely done, he was burned. Through that process and the work of others afterwards, we have an English Bible. He gave his life that we could be Bible-centered. If we're going to be Bible-centered, it's going to take a little bit of work. It's going to take some study. It's going to take some reflection. It's going to take some effort. But it won't cost our lives. It may even save our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the work of people like Martin Luther, William Tyndall, for those who gave their lives to help us understand Scripture so that we could hear you, so that our lives could change in the way you call for them to change, so that we could honor you for all the good things you've done for us. We ask for you to be with us, that our lives might be truly biblical, that our community might be truly biblical, for your honor and glory and in praise of Jesus. Amen.